I'm John Harris. I'm the executive director for the Tennessee Firearms Association. I'm also a practicing attorney in Nashville. Today, we're going to briefly examine the Second Amendment and how it applies in Tennessee. Now, many of you are already familiar with the language of the Second Amendment. It says, a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. In Tennessee, we also have a state constitutional provision regarding the right to keep and bear arms. That's found in Article 1, Section 26 of our current Constitution. That provision states that the citizens of this state have a right to keep and to bear arms for their common defense. But the legislature shall have the power, by law, to regulate the wearing of arms with a view to prevent crime. Most judges, most elected officials, and most legislators understood for the first 150 or so years of this nation what right was being protected by the Second Amendment. There are some court cases which discuss that right. There are some treatises which write about that right. But in general, most of them understood it and got it right. But after about the 1930s, judges, legislators, and elected officials started to have serious misconceptions about what the Second Amendment stood for. They made arguments that it only applied to weapons in existence in the 1700s. They argued, based upon the militia reference, that it only applied when citizens were serving in organized militias, when citizens were serving in military roles overseen by the government, or in other collective situations. None of those arguments were found in the body of the amendment itself. They were all dreamed up by these government officials. Then in 2008, the United States Supreme Court took up a case called the District of Columbia versus Heller. In that case, the court was looking at directly the Second Amendment and how it applied to some laws that existed in the District of Columbia, under which Mr. Heller had been prosecuted. The court concluded on a very narrow five to four margin that the right being discussed in the Second Amendment is not a collective right it is, in fact, an individual right held by each of the citizens of this nation. The court also found that the right exists independent of the Constitution. It was not created by the Constitution. It was not created by any state constitution. It's not created by any statute. The court said that this is a right that pre-exists the formation of our nation. The court also looked at the argument that it only applied to weapons such as those in existence and use in the 1700s. And based upon case law concerning the First and the Fourth Amendments, the court said that that argument is invalid and that it applies to any long arms or handguns that are commonly owned by the citizens of this country. The Scalia court in the Heller decision then pretty much stopped at that point and did not address a lot of other issues that people were still debating and discussing. However, the Scalia decision in the Heller opinion was still an earth-shaking outcome in a case uh, such as this because it was in conflict with what so many government officials and so many in academia thought was the limits on the Second Amendment. It clearly established through the court of last resort in this nation that this was an individual right, and because it pre-exists both the Constitution and our statutes, it's not one that can be erased or deleted by a Constitution or our statutes. But as I indicated, there are still a lot of questions left concerning the scope of the Second Amendment. 
in 2010, the United States Supreme Court took up another case called McDonald versus the city of Chicago. The issue in the McDonald decision was did the Second Amendment apply to restrict or prohibit the states from infringing the right protected by the Second Amendment? The case law is extremely clear that the Second Amendment itself was initially intended only to apply to the federal government. It never applied directly to the states. And for that reason, many states had similar constitutional provisions. But in McDonald, the court was asked to specifically answer the question, does the Second Amendment apply to the states? In the analysis, the court found that the Second Amendment itself does not apply to the states. But the court did conclude that because of the 14th Amendment and what's called the incorporation doctrine, that the provisions of the Second Amendment, the prohibition against government infringement from that date forward would apply to the states. So now we find ourselves in a situation where the threshold prohibition nationally, regardless of any state constitutions, on the infringement of the right of citizens to keep and bear arms is the Second Amendment. No state can do any infringement that would fall within the prohibitions of the Second Amendment, regardless of what the state constitution says. The result of that in Tennessee is the 1870 Tennessee constitutional provision, which gives the legislature ostensibly the right to regulate the wearing of arms with a view towards crime prevention, as a result of the McDonald decision, is no longer constitutionally valid if those regulations constitute an infringement of the right recognized and protected by the Second Amendment. But Scalia really didn't deal with, in the Heller decision, the full answer to the question of what are protected arms under the Second Amendment. But fortunately, other courts have looked at that issue. Two Tennessee Supreme Court decisions have directly examined that issue. One was a case called Amet versus State decided in 1840. The other is a case called Andrews versus State that was decided in 1871. And here's what the courts said, and I'm quoting out of Andrews. The court said, so the arms, the right to keep, which is secured, are such as are usually employed in civilized warfare and constitute the ordinary military equipment. The court went on to say, if the citizens have these arms in their hands, they are prepared in the best possible manner to repel any encroachments upon their rights by those in authority. I've always thought it was interesting that the Andrews decision observed that the Second Amendment and the category of arms protected by the Second Amendment were specifically intended to vest in the citizens the right to own military-grade weapons that would be suitable against, quote, those in authority, talking about our own government officials not necessarily foreign invasions, but our own government officials. Those are two rather old Tennessee Supreme Court decisions, but they are significant, and they're significant because they were picked up by the United States Supreme Court in a decision decided in 1939 called U.S. versus Miller. The Miller came about shortly after the enactment of the National Firearms Act, and the issue in Miller was the government had indicted a couple of people for taking a shotgun and sawing off the barrel and possessing it without paying the $200 tax to create that weapon. The defense in the Miller case at the federal district court level was that 
the charges could not be brought against these individuals by the government because they possessed arms within the scope of the Second Amendment, and therefore they could not be taxed $200 because the tax would constitute an infringement on their right to keep and bear those categories of arms. The trial court, the district judge, agreed with the defendants and dismissed the indictments. That case was then appealed by the government, the U.S. Department of Justice, to the U.S. Supreme Court at that time. And the U.S. Supreme Court didn't really resolve the issue, but it did give us a statement that told us at least in 1939 what the judges on the court thought the scope of the Second Amendment included in terms of arms. And what the court said is it is not within the judicial notice that this weapon, keep in mind we're talking about a sawed-off shotgun, is any part of the ordinary military equipment or that these could contribute to the common defense. And the court directly quoted the Tennessee Supreme Court decision in a Met versus State. So what the court was saying in Miller was that if there was evidence that the military at the time, 1939, used sawed-off shotguns as ordinary equipment, then it would, in fact, be protected by the Second Amendment, and it would have been unconstitutional for the federal government to tax civilian ownership of those kinds of weapons. Now, that is a tremendous finding that's quite different than what most courts, most public officials, most legislators think today. And it's even more interesting when you look at the brief that the Department of Justice actually filed in the Miller decision. Now, this was filed back in 1939, so don't expect that the modern Department of Justice, particularly under a Harris-Biden administration, is going to argue anywhere near this. But here's what the Department of Justice argued in Miller, and I'm quoting again. The Second Amendment does not confer upon the people the right to keep and bear arms. It is one of the provisions of the Constitution which, recognizing the prior existence of a certain right, declares that it shall not be infringed by Congress. Thus, the right to keep and bear arms is not a right granted by the Constitution, and therefore it is not dependent upon the instrument for its source. The Department of Justice then said, while some courts have said that the right to bear arms includes the right of the individual to have them for protection of his person and property, as well as the right of the people to bear them collectively, the cases are unanimous in holding that the term arms as used in the constitutional provisions refers only to the weapons which are ordinarily used for military or public defense purposes and does not relate to those weapons which are commonly used by criminals. So take a step back and think about that. What the Department of Justice was arguing in 1939 is that the sawed-off shotgun wasn't a military-grade weapon. The Department of Justice was arguing if it had been a military-grade weapon, it was beyond the scope of Congress's authority to regulate it or tax it. But the Department of Justice claimed that the sawed-off shotgun was just the weapon of the gangsters. And that's why this court itself said we can't take judicial notice of what happens with sawed-off shotguns. Are they military equipment or not? Because there was no evidence in the record of that issue. The case was sent back to the trial court, and we don't have any further history on that case as to whether or not the trial court even took that issue back up because the case seems to have just ended with the Supreme Court decision. 
So taking into consideration this brief overview of the Second Amendment and how it applies to Tennessee, what can we take away from this? First, the right to own arms is one that is recognized constitutionally by the United States Supreme Court. It did not rise from any constitution. It did not rise from any statute in this country. It exists prior to and completely independent of documents that government created. The second thing we can take away is that the Second Amendment, since it's not the creator of a right, all it does is prohibit government infringement of the right that otherwise independently exists. Now, we know today that this prohibition has been largely ignored by judges and legislators since at least the 1930s, but that is clearly the scope of the constitutional prohibition. The third thing we take away from this, based on the McDonald decision, is that now both state and federal governments are prohibited from infringing the right. Now, it doesn't mean that they're paying attention to that, but there is a clear prohibition that can be enforced. And the fourth item is just that last observation. There is going to be, as government becomes more and more oppressive, an increasing need in individual citizens and citizens collectively to engage in politics, to elect the right kind of public officials, particularly our legislators and our judges, who are willing to enforce the original scope, intent, and purpose of the Second Amendment. It's also going to be increasingly necessary that citizens acting individually and collectively take seriously the need to bring tactical litigation in the courts like the left has done for many, many decades in an effort to more clearly define and restore this right and to strike down literally tons of unconstitutional legislation. In Tennessee, you can join that fight by joining us in the Tennessee Firearms Association. You can go to www.tennesseefirearms.com. Tennessee Firearms is all spelled out. And again, that's www.tennesseefirearms.com.